There's an old wives' tale out there that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It's meant to deter children from drinking coffee. According to popular wisdom, children shouldn't drink coffee because, fill in the blank, stunts their growth. Yes, we're all familiar with that. However, according to one Cleveland Clinic pediatric doctor who actually studied this, he realized it's a statement with nothing to back it up. Caffeine doesn't actually impact growth. So there you go, kids. Drink away if your parents let you. But that doesn't mean that the drug doesn't have any other effects on children or people in general. There's a reason why we keep going back to that tasty bean brew. What would it look like if just one sip of coffee had the power to stunt your growth, to keep you with where you at right now? Would people vigorously guard children against, guard against children from getting it? We probably wouldn't have it in the kitchen for people to drink at their leisure and at their will. I would guess that people would still end up drinking the stuff and take their chances. After all, stunting one's growth isn't really that big of a deal, right? Is it really a problem? But what if coffee actually was the fountain of youth? What if it allowed you to keep your kids young for decades so you could remember all of those precious moments and milestones as they go? You'd never have to worry about them growing up and moving away. You could keep them. Would it be worth it? There's a part of us that says, yeah, that's what I want. I want to keep my kids young and I want to cherish these times and these moments. There is another study by San Diego State University that looked at another trend that we see. The prolonged adolescence of teenagers in 2017. They determined through this study that 25 was actually the new 18. When you turn 18, you get all kinds of, you're treated as a legal adult. You can do things that 17-year-olds aren't able to do. You can vote and all of this stuff. And magically, by hitting that 18th birthday, you are an adult with all the privileges, power, and wisdom that comes with that. But the researchers found out that as they studied this, that it was taking longer for teenagers to grow up these days, to mature, so the 18-year-olds of today aren't like the 18-year-olds of yesterday. They found out that kids don't have to worry about responsibility, and that that itself delayed growing up into adulthood. And on the one hand, again, we welcome it, because our kids get to be our kids for a little bit longer. And yet, on the other hand, we say, get out of my basement. It's time. You're, you're 45 years old. It's time for you to go out on your own. So there's that balance there. But is it really that much of a problem if our kids never grow up? Deep down, we all know that we have to grow up at some point in time. And it's why we educate our kids and, and train our kids and teach them what we know so that they can succeed in life once they leave our oversight, once they leave our homes, leave our homes. Growth is essential to life. It's easy to see that in the physical world in, in which we live. It's important to keep on growing. But spiritual growth is just as essential to life. Only it's emphasized much less. In his letter to the church of, of God in Corinth, Paul addresses this instance that's happening with these saints. He confronts issues that this congregation was going through. And, and in our text this morning, Paul goes after their delayed spiritual maturity saying you guys ought to be farther along than, than what you are right now. 
And people, before they have the chance to debate the fact, Paul points out the evidence to them. I invite you again to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as I read verses 1 through 15. And again, if you are able to, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 15. Again, reading in Jesus' name. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth. God, give us understanding and insights to know and, and to hear and to learn your word today. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul had planted this church in Corinth about five years before he writes this letter. They had started well. And five years in, one would think that they've had a little bit of progress. I mean, think of it. The Apostle Paul was their first pastor. So surely they would be growing in leaps and bounds as believers. Unfortunately, that's not what we see here at this time. Instead, it's a congregation with a few problems, and I use that word few lightly, because the problems that are addressed here are rather significant problems. These aren't just things that you can just sweep under the rug, and yet that's exactly what they're trying to do, ignoring it as though it doesn't make any difference, as though it doesn't really exist. They're avoiding the issue, but everything, saying everything was fine because, hey, at least they're still going to church. But Paul comes down hard on these brothers and sisters in chapter 3. He gathers them together and he says this, Listen up, boys. Listen up, girls. Listen up, infants. Hey, kids, I'm talking to you. And it's kind of really offensive, isn't it? Now, I would venture to guess that if I were to come up here one day and I were to start addressing you as little children, it wouldn't go over so well. Many of you are more than twice my age in here, or old enough to be my parents or grandparents, and nobody wants to be talked down to by someone like that, especially a young punk kid. So I won't try it out for size here. 
I'm learning because I'm regularly chastised at home anytime I refer to one of our kids who will be nameless as little. I am not little. Okay, okay, you're not little. Nope, I wasn't, but if you heard that, you, you now know who it was. Thank you, Evan. So I should realize that by now. But going back to 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul says to the whole congregation here. He's not singling out the the youngsters in the crowd, but he is addressing everyone from the oldest to the youngest as little children. It's been five years, and surely they ought to be farther along in their spiritual maturity than where they are at. And yet, what do we see? They're fighting over something so elementary, fighting over something so basic and so silly Paul calls these people saints of God, chosen of God, and yet here we are seeing them bickering over something so small. Maybe they knew a thing or two about the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written at this time. And they might have been able to recite the, the books of the Old Testament in order or describe for you a rough timeline of events happening in, in the Old Testament. They might know the first four kings of Israel. They might know the names of some of the judges and and all the historical acts that God led his people through. Yet Paul isn't going after their lack of knowledge here. Knowing that our actions flow from what's in our hearts, he bypasses the mind and he goes after their actions. And he says this, you are all still fleshly or worldly. You are all still walking in accordance with the flesh, walking like the world would walk, walking as though there is no God, walking as though Christ never stepped foot on this earth. Not as a Christian not to conduct his life. You think that you can chew on the spiritual steak for a bit, but it will give you no nutrients because you are not able to digest it. You still haven't even made it to the point of solid foods. And again, it's a harsh claim here. And Paul isn't cutting any quarters here. And the audience could probably point to a number of things to say why they are are able to eat meat, so to speak, right now. Yet their actions and their behavior is is lagging far behind. Paul points to the evidence of, of their walking in the flesh. And he says this, they're fighting over factions. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas, and my favorite, but I am of Christ. Paul says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 12, and again in verse 4, he goes back to this as well. They're basing their importance and value off of the person who was their teacher. I was here first. I was here when, when Paul was here, and so therefore I'm more important than you, or I know a little better than you. And someone else might say, yeah, 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 you say you're of Paul, but I'm one up, going to one up you. I am of Christ. And they separate themselves into these various camps. I came during the first pastor. I came during the second pastor. So I'm still more important than you. Besides, he's no longer here. Paul's not here anymore. And we see these people nipping at one another. But Paul nips this foolishness in the bud. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Not who, but he says, what? What are these people? He isn't after their person. Paul knows who they are. He knows who he himself is. But he's getting at their office here. He's getting at their role. What is their role in the congregation? What is the work that they came to do? Sure, they were great people, but they came for a purpose. They came for a task. What was it? 
In verses 5 through 6, Paul points out what they are. They are servants. Servants through whom you believed. They are just the instruments that God chose to use to bring his truth to these people. They're gifts of God. And they aren't anything special or extraordinary. They're not worthy of of idolizing or putting on a pedestal. They're certainly not worthy of creating any factions over. In fact, Paul points out here that they're on the same team. We're all after the same goal. We're trying to accomplish the same thing. He uses an, an agricultural analogy here. Paul planted and Apollos watered. You need both if you're going to grow anything. And ultimately, those actions in and of themselves don't cause the growth. Farmers know that. Anyone who's tried to plant something knows that. Anyone who has tried to water something and it does not grow up understands that. That there is something outside of ourselves that is necessary to cause the growth because I cannot do it. These men are both powerless to produce the intended results. Instead, God is the one, was the one and God is the one who causes the growth in this congregation. At the end of the day, Paul chastises these Corinthians to look beyond themselves, to look beyond their petty factions, to see the work that the Lord is wanting to do in their midst, wanting to do in them and through them. A faithful pastor is a gracious gift of the Lord to a congregation. And even so, the congregation is not to be defined by its pastor. What does Paul describe the congregation here as? In verse, verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You're God's building. You're not Paul's field. You're not Paul's building. You're not Apollos' field. You're not his building either, but you are God's field and God's building. God is the one who is working in you. What is Paulus? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed and nothing more. The work the Lord desires to do in the congregation transcends the pastor, whoever that pastor might be. A pastor is simply defined here as a fellow worker, someone who is just leading God's people to where God wants them to be. And each pastor is going to be a little bit different. I've heard it said before in in this congregation that each pastor that has been here has been here for a certain season of time and seems to be just the right fit for whatever it was that God had planned to use that pastor for. And praise be to God for that. And God has someone in store for wherever he's leading us as a congregation next as well. Each one has been different. And the next pastor who will serve here will also be different. But the Lord will use him. And the Lord will continue to cause this congregation to grow in maturity through whoever is occupying this pulpit and whoever is occupying the office of pastor. Paul says something in verse 9 that, again, is worth taking a little time for. He addresses himself and Apollos and all the other pastors and leaders as God's fellow workers here. Tenants in God's field. Workers in, in God's vineyard. He addresses the congregation as God's field and God's building. Again, notice it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. It's not the pastor's field, it's not the council's field, it's not a family's field, it is God's field. And he has called each one of us here. Because God is doing work in each one of us. We are his building. He is doing something in us and with us that is beautiful and that is remarkable. 
something that reflects the beauty of God and the love of God for all mankind. This is the Lord's work. Elsewhere, Christ says, a house divided amongst itself cannot stand. And so as Paul is getting again at the root of these factions here, calling them to unity, to see we are of the same foundation. We are God's field, so it doesn't matter whose faction or what side of the argument you're going to be on here. Let's throw all that aside and recognize what it is that we are standing on, what we are building on. We are the Lord's field. We are the Lord's building. And he is doing a work in and through us. Recognize that God's fellow worker has been sent here to help the congregation grow. He has been sent here to plant. He has been sent here to water. But ultimately, God is the one who's doing the work. But it's also good for us to look around and to see that through, that though we are God's field, that we too are also God's fellow workers. That God is working through each one of us. Each one of us has been given a handful of seeds to sow, and each one of us has given a watering can. And rather than factioning off into different groups or chastising other people or, or judging ourselves based off of other people, we are each chasing after the same goal here. Growing in Christ and pursuing spiritual maturity. And in that task, we need each other. In that task, iron sharpens iron. And, and someone once said that when that happens, sparks fly. And sometimes sparks fly, don't they? But in that moment, that refining moment, where it might be difficult and painful at times, God is causing the growth for us. We need each other. God is using you to build up others, and he is using others to build up you. So getting back to this text, Paul again returns to the foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ. If we are to build anything that will last, it must be built upon, upon that one and only foundation, the foundation of Christ and his, words, his word. As we just sang, not what our hands have done can do anything, really, but on what Christ has done and what he is doing as he continues to nourish and as he continues to build his church. For these infant Christians who've been stunted in their growth, who've been infants for five plus years now, for believers of any age, and of any age, in any age and of any age, we must continually be going back to the foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ that grounds us in unity. When division seems to arise, we go back to the greatest common denominator, we go back to Christ, to the same foundation. That foundation grounds us in unity when we want to go down fleshly roads and, and we want to act as, as sinners with our own sinful natures and our own ideas, which we know are right because I know what's right. And to once again submit ourselves to the Word of God and the Spirit of God and to be fashioned and formed into God's field and to God's building. When we think and act no differently than the world and the message of Christ calls us to lay down our pride and our factions, and to remember once again that we are God's field and God's building, and that he is at work in us. And the last verses here in this text speak about the various building materials that can be used. This last month or so, we've been trying to find a house, a place to live for the future down the road, and I've been learning a few things. Apparently, not all houses are the same. And if you've ever lived in a house, moved to a different house, you understand that concept. They're made differently, and some of them are made with different products. 
And I found out that if you are looking for a loan and you want to get a loan for a prefabbed home, it matters what year that house was built. Because after a certain year, and Lane, I don't know if you know this, if it's the same in Kansas. I know it is in South Dakota. After a certain year, if it's before that, that prefab home is not going to qualify for a loan because it's not going to last. It's not going to last the duration of that loan. And so it's risky. Not all material is the same quality. And this is what Paul is getting at here. You can build with straw. You can make something nice and fancy. You can make it big and spacious, and and it can be mesmerizing for the world. You can build with stone. You can build with costly stones. You can build with wood. But when the fire comes, what's going to be left standing? Are we building with something that is going to last? Are Are we building on this firm foundation here? Are we building our congregation upon something that is going to last and transcend the fires that time brings, the trials and temptations that come our way? Are we building our own lives upon something that will last as well? The ideas of of who God is and what he has done, which is part of the reason why we confess a creed each and every week, reminding us again of who God is, of that firm foundation and what Christ has done for us. It's grounding us. It's rooting us. The world recognizes that not everything will last here. Not all buildings are the same. Watch any house flipping show or talk with the realtor and you'll find those things out. They won't last. The same is true with trying to build a congregation or even our own spiritual growth. We can chase after the latest fads and gimmicks to attract a bigger crowd and it could look like it's something majestic. And that's not inherently a bad thing, by the way. But if all we're going after is seeking to build numbers or seeking to gather a crowd together, then let's just have a picnic. It's doing the same thing, right? But we exist for something greater. We are pursuing spiritual maturity. We are pursuing to be built upon the foundation of Christ and his word. So what we do, what we teach, what we speak about matters. How we build our lives, how we build our congregation If we offer people gold and silver, not monetary objects here, but something of of costly value here, something that they need, if we offer them the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation, meaning and hope, this is what we have and we find in the foundation of Jesus Christ. When we offer this, people who come will find that. They'll taste and see that the Lord is good and continue to come back. If we tell people about the God who knows everything about us, and yet still chooses to meet us in the well, like that woman we read about a few weeks ago, then we'll come back and we'll be fed and nourished. When we come to invite people to come and see who Jesus is, to learn about him and from him, if we learn that Christ meets us here to forgive us our sins, to claim us as his own, that he desires to meet with us, and this is a growth that will last And that's a growth that will endure the trials and tempests of this life. A growth that will be sustained regardless of the polished product that we have, that we find in a pulpit. And that's what we've been called into, friends. We've been called into spiritual maturity. Not to walk as those who are governed by the flesh, going by after our our own desires, but ones who are maturing past the milk. That spiritual maturity can come from others whom the Lord chooses to challenge us with, 
whether we agree with them or disagree with them, to sharpen us with the knowledge of God's Word, to sharpen us in our ability to follow after God and in our own personal walk with Christ. Those vessels through whom the Lord waters and nourishes us, those from whom we believe. And it comes from folks who are willing to call us out from our fleshly tantrums and into submission to God's Word. As much as we'd like to think of ourselves as wise sages in the Christian life, and to be fair, we, we have been doing some maturing, haven't we? As much as we'd like to call ourselves wise sages, we look back at our actions and we realize, you know what, there's a lot of room for growth. I still haven't mastered the basics of turning from my sin and turning to the Lord. It's something I struggle with daily. I need milk. I need to be fed. I need to be nourished. Our actions, our thoughts, and our words at times reveal that we have a long way to go until we reach that maturity, until we're ready to be sent out into the world on our own. And so again, God calls us into congregations that we can grow together. And he's not done with you yet. So brothers and sisters, don't let your growth be stunted as a Christian. Don't fall for factions and divisions and and recognize the times that we walk in regard to the flesh rather than in walking as in regard to the Spirit. And notice that all the fellow workers that God has given to you for your growth, whether it's the pastor now, the pastors in behalf, Sunday school teachers, or other brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage you and nourish you and sustain you in your walk with the Lord, that God has sent people into your life to speak life into you, to draw you back to the Lord. And to continue to build upon the foundation that Christ came into this world to save sinners. And the foundation we continue to go back to and recognize that Christ came into this world to save me. Because I am the foremost of sinners. And in those times when we tend to walk by the flesh and not by spirit, to remember again that I am still fleshly. That I am still part of God's field. That God is still working in me and with me. And God is still working amongst others as well. That I am God's building, not my own. I belong to him and not to others. That Christ is the one who came to save and he continues to strengthen and mature us so that our foundation will firmly remain and our lives be built with what lasts. Whatever trials, temptations, storms, or fires come and test what we have built our lives upon. At the end of the day, at the end of our lives, may they be found built firmly on the word of God and in Christ.